Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, a few years ago, uh, a friend uh, who is from the Northern Hemisphere, where there's usually a lot of snow during the season, said, you know, in Australia... It, Christmas doesn't feel quite like Christmas because it's just so warm. Now, I get that, particularly for those who've grown up in the Northern Hemisphere and where it's the peak of winter during this time, and so you associate, you know, cold weather and um, snowing and whatnot to that Christmas season. But I want to ask you this morning, what is it that makes Christmas, this Christmas season, so significant? I mean, is it the weather that it's cold or hot in our case or fairly pleasant for us, at least this year? Uh, What is it that makes Christmas significant? You know, these past few weeks, as I've just been, when I go out and drive around, it's been interesting to see whether it's So many people, particularly in the last few years, I would think, at least in my neighborhood, where there's so many decorations outside in this season. But the decorations that you see, and I would imagine they spend quite a lot of money and definitely quite a bit of electricity as well because some of the houses look beautiful with those lights outside. And then you have these big, gigantic reindeer thing or Santa Claus or some elf or something like that. You go into shopping malls, you see something similar as well. You, you have, you know, Santa Claus and you've got to pay money to sit with this professional Santa Claus and take a photograph with him. Uh, and just, just everywhere, you know, people associate this Christmas season everywhere we look at with either the elf of the hat Uh, the hat of the elf or Santa Claus, uh, or something to the extent of that. Now, I've got nothing against Santa Claus, but the reality is if we were to trace Santa Claus, the true Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, he died a long time ago. And the story of this big ho-ho-ho big man with a white beard flying around on a reindeer, that is simply not true. For some of you children, if this is the first time you're hearing that, I'm sorry. (laughs) Your parents will speak to you at home and tell you what Christmas is really about. Now, I've got nothing against, you know, having a, you know, a little bit of fun like that or, you know, having those Santa hats or elf hats or whatever else. But here's the thing. Um, We as people of God... We as Christians who follow Christ, when we are bombarded like this, you know, just all around us, I don't think I saw a single cross, I saw a single manger or anything like that outside anybody's house. And yet there's these fancy decorations. And I think because of the way that our hearts can be so prone to wander, even as Christians sometimes, we can cheapen what Christmas is about. We might know what Christmas is perhaps intellectually, but 
you know, we just go through the motions during Christmas season and the season is done. But what I want you to, but what I want to do this morning is look at God's Word and just remind us all again about the significance of Christmas, what Christmas is all about. And for that, we'll look at the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John, I was particularly drawn to the Gospel of John. Uh, well, my, I like the Gospel of John. It's one of my favorite Gospels. But aside from that, there's so many connections theologically about Jesus that is uh, connected to the book of Hebrews as well. So I was even more so drawn to the book of John this season. And the thing about the Gospel of John is it's a beautiful gospel written. It is, it's easy to read, and yet, as some have said, it's also very profound, unlike the other gospels, unlike Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke. And, and it's, it's just a wonderful read, and there's so many things that are unique in the Gospel of John. Really, when you think about this disciple of Jesus, John, he is someone, as, as he's written even the epistle John, one, in 1 John 1, 1, he's a man, this John, who knew Jesus and saw Jesus and heard him and touched his hands. And so he knew this Jesus intimately. In fact, if you look in this Gospel of John, John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I love that, how he never uses his name. He simply says, the disciple that Jesus loved. Why does he do that? Because he just had such a strong sense of how beloved he was to Jesus, how loved he was by Jesus. And so he writes from that perspective. And he writes this gospel to to really help people understand who Jesus is, because he loves Jesus so much, he wants people to understand who Jesus is and then consequently be changed by Jesus. In fact, John 20, verse 30 and 31, gives the purpose for why he's written this gospel. It says that you know, John essentially chose these particular stories and signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So what he's saying is, this Jesus, he is so beautiful. I want to really tell you about Jesus. I want, I want to... I want to help you see Jesus for yourself. There's so much to Jesus and what he's done for you than what you can even imagine, as one author commented. And I trust that as we look at this passage, it would only cause us to love God and even treasure Jesus even more this Christmas season and understand the very significance of why we celebrate uh, Christmas. And to do this, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, and we're going to look at Jesus as the person of the Word in verses 1 through 5. And then 
in verse 14, we're going to look at something else about Jesus, that he is the incarnated word. So two things about Jesus that John will want to tell us about. Firstly, the person of the word in verses 1 through 5. So he begins by saying, John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the word. Now, this is interesting too, because unlike the other gospels where they go to either Adam or Abraham and start with a genealogy or maybe just the nativity scene or how the birth happens, that's not where John goes. Now, he says, I want to explain to you who Jesus is and the good news of Jesus. And to do that, I'm going to go back to the very beginning. The very beginning before history began. Before the universe was created. Before anything was created. Before there was time. He goes back to that very beginning of everything. And I don't know if we can even imagine this. When there was absolutely nothing in this world. And he says, in the beginning of all those things, right when there was nothing, the word already was. That there's never been a moment where the word was not. The word was and has always been in existence for all of eternity. See, here's the point that he's trying to make. If everything began at a certain point, and you existed before everything began, what does that make you? Eternal. And so what he's saying is this word is eternal, is and always has been, and the word has no beginning, even though everything else has a beginning. In fact, the term word... You know, when you think of that term there for word, you know, we all use words, right? And we can't know someone, what's in someone's heart and in someone's mind till they express it in their words. Words become the means by which we express ourselves. Now, God's word is also the means by which he expresses himself, the, the means by which he communicates himself. You know, in the prophetic books, we read regularly that the word of the Lord came to me or came to this prophet or whoever. And then as the word of the Lord comes, some revelations, some revelation about who God is and what his will is, is made clear to the people. But God's word is unlike any other. Because God's word is powerful and effective to bring about what he has promised. I mean, you think of Genesis, right? Genesis 1. God's word is the means by which he powerfully created the entire universe. Whatever is in the heavens and in the earth. And then Psalm 107 verse 20 says, he, he, referring to God, sends out his word and... Excuse me. And healed them and delivered them from their destruction. 
God's word is so powerful that it can heal people and deliver people, save people from their destruction. In other places, we read of how God's word even brings judgment. So here's how we can you know, put it all together. As one commentator put it, the word of God is God's powerful self-expression. It is God's word that can reveal and create and save and judge all that God has purposed. But here's the thing. God's word is not some sort of impersonal force that, you know, just mere words that are coming out from him. God's word is actually a person. Look at what John says next. So first he says, I want you to understand, in the beginning was the Word, that the Word is eternal. Then he says, the Word was with God. Or could also be translated, the Word was toward God. You know, some scholars have even said this, that you could, you, you could well translate it as the Word was face to face with God. Now think about it for a moment. If the Word of God is just something that is impersonal, just mere words coming out of God, what's the direction it should go in? It just moves out and then just goes on, right? But if the Word was with God or toward God, the implication is that this Word is not just some impersonal force, that this Word is a person, this is talking about an intimate relationship that the Word has with God. You know, when you talk about two people being in an intimate relationship with each other, sometimes we would say something like this, oh, they're always with each other all the time. They're always with each other. What do we mean by that? They're just so intimate, they're always with each other. And that's the sort of idea here that the eternal word is a person and he has been in intimate relationship with God from before time, from before the beginning. For all eternity, he has been face to face with God. I mean, think about it. No man or being has this kind of close relationship with God. You know, the Bible says no one has seen the face of God. You know, men would be obliterated if they simply saw God like that. Even the angels who have never sinned, as they cry out, holy, holy, holy to the God Almighty, what do they do when they do that? They still cover themselves with their wings. Why? Because of the immensity of God. They're not face to face with God. But this eternal word, he is in such an intimate relationship with God that he is face to face with God, delighting in God, in perfect joy and harmony, and has been for eternity. You know, John, the author of this book, as I said before, he describes himself as the disciple whom... Jesus loved. And then in John 13, verse 23, 
He describes himself as the one who felt so close to Jesus, close enough to rest his head on Jesus' side. And so he had that kind of relationship with Jesus. And so now he wants us to understand, as he begins to tell us about Jesus, that this eternal word is a person who has enjoyed the closest possible relationship with God for all eternity. This word is someone who's been at the bosom of God for all eternity. Next he says, so the word was in the beginning, the word was with God, and then he says the word was God. In other words, the word has the same essence and character of God. Or to put it another way, all that God is, the word is. And yet there is a distinction of persons because he's just said the word was with God. So there's two persons here. The person who is eternal word and there is God. But the word is also God. So what is John alluding to? He's alluding to the fact that there is more than one person in the eternal Godhead. Yes, the Bible teaches that there is only one God. But this one God has three persons in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Now this eternal God, eternal Word, who is also God, is actually referring to God the eternal Son. And that's who Jesus is. You know, different people... You could say from even 280 onwards, somewhere around that time, even up till this age, there are people who will try to deny that Jesus is God. Well, one group, especially these days, looking at some of these passages, would be the Jehovah Witnesses. Now, they come with, they come knock on your door, or sometimes they're just traveling by and they'll have these watchtower booklets. They're the Jehovah Witnesses. And they will point out this verse and it, where it says that, the, and they would say that, no, this actually means the word is a God. Saying, and they would say, oh, you know what? That's because in the Greek New Testament, there is no definite article, the. It doesn't say the God, as in the true God. There's no article there. So it just means that this word is a God. Meaning that the word or Jesus is a God or that Jesus has divine qualities, but he's not the real God. Well, there, there's many ways to answer them. One simple way to tell them is to just go back to their Greek New Testament and look at this same chapter and look at all the places where God is used in this particular chapter in their Greek New Testament. And they will notice that there is no definite article, the, used with God in any of those occasions. So does that make any of the other references to God just mainly some other God? No. So that's... that's 
one easy way to refute them. But what John wants us to understand is this. The eternal word is the person of God, is a person of the Godhead. He's very much God. He's not a God. He's very much a person of the Godhead. And so then he goes on to explain further who this other person of God is. Verse 2 and verse 3. Now he says he. Who's the he now? This he is referring to the word now that he's just talked about. is a person who is with God and is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. What he's saying is every single thing that is created, from the smallest microscopic organism to the largest star, all things were made through the Word, that is, God the Son. There is nothing in this world that is created other than what is created through the Word. There's no other means by which anything is created. And what that also means is that this word, or the eternal son, was never created as well. You say, why? Because if there's nothing created in this world that has not been created through him, the implication is he himself is uncreated. Now, when we, think of the, when we think of creation and the intricate ways in which everything has been created and how it functions in such an orderly way, you know, think of perhaps some simple things like the photosynthesis of, of plants and how carbon dioxide is absorbed by the plants and oxygen is released by the plants. And how it helps with maintaining the, the gas levels in the atmosphere. You think of the sun rising and the sun setting. Now, there's never going to be a point where the sun will come out at some significant time and just stop there or suddenly go back or anything like that. It'll function exactly how it's been functioning in an orderly fashion. When you think of the rotation of the planets around the sun, and all the other wonderful things that happen in an orderly fashion in the world, you have to say, that, you know, the, what kind of wisdom would it have taken to bring about you know, such order in this vast universe? And it's not just the wisdom, but even the kind of power to create all this, everything that we see around us, and even the power to sustain all of that is around us, and the power to sustain the order in this world. When you think of, okay, that's, that's like phenomenal wisdom, out of this world wisdom, literally, and it's unending supreme power. And it's not just power to bring things into existence, it's even power to create life. Notice verse 4. In him was life. The Word, who's the Word? God, the Eternal Son, has life in Himself. 
And what that means is he is not dependent on anything external to himself for his life. You know, we need oxygen, we need food, and we're dependent, ultimately we need God to sustain our life. We don't have life in ourselves. But the Word, God the Son, He's not dependent on anything external to Himself for His life. And because He has life in Himself, He then becomes the source of all life everywhere. Physical life and even spiritual life. And I think the emphasis here seems to be more on the spiritual life that's given to mankind. Because he goes on to say that this spiritual life is what enables men to see. Verse, look at the next part of verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So you say, well, why do human beings, what's the problem with human beings? Why do they need life and why do they need light? Well, here's the problem. Human beings were created, but they sinned and rebelled against God. And now, because of that, now they have a sin nature and all human beings are now spiritually dead and spiritually blind. But the Word, who is God the Son, has life in Himself. And He gives life, and the life that He gives, that spiritual life, then becomes light. You say, how? Because when that spiritual life comes in, it brings light to that person, it exposes the spiritual darkness and the sin of that person, and then this person is able to see their need for God, and even spiritually see the beauty and the glory of God the Son. So that's how this spiritual life then gives light, exposing everything about themselves and making clear the truth of who God is and who, who the second person of the triune God is. And now the thought is summarized in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So into the spiritual darkness and wickedness of this world, the light of the Word will shine, and it'll shine so brightly that no darkness will be able to snuff it out. Now, here's what I want you to understand. If the Word, God the Eternal Son, if He didn't want to bring life and light to mankind, then humanity would be lost forever. See, we would all remain spiritually dead and remain in spiritual darkness and sin. And ultimately, we would enter into the eternal darkness of judgment. So this is a wonderful thing that John is telling about the person of the Word. Here's just, just think with me about this, e even the thought about creation. Why did God create this universe, and why did God create you and me? Why did he create human beings? I mean, was he lonely? Did he feel alone, and I just need some people to chat with and look at and things like that? Did he 
feel like, oh, I just want somebody to love me or something like that? Or if, was he less joyful in some sense? And was he thinking, okay, so perhaps I'll create all this and I'll be more joyful? No, you need to understand, just like God the Eternal Son was face to face with God, it was not just God the Eternal Son, it was even God the Spirit. So that triune God, the three persons of the Godhead, eternally have been in close, intimate relationship with each other. Where there's love and joy and peace and contentment and everything you can imagine within that Godhead. And so God has no needs external to Him. He's not dependent on anything. He doesn't want anything so that it'll fill some empty cup of His. God is fully self-sufficient and self-sustaining. Then you say, well then, why did God create this universe? Why did He create you and me? Well, because He wanted to share His glory with His creatures. He wanted to share His love and His righteousness and His joy and everything with His creatures. That's why He created you and me and the entire universe. In fact, when you think of the fact that the second person of the triune God is described as the Word of God, it even tells us something about God's nature there. That He's not a God who's aloof from His creation. He's not a God who tries to hide from His people. No, He's a God who wants to reveal Himself and share of who He is and commune with His creation. That's the gracious God that John is talking about. And what John wants us to understand is that this is who Jesus is. See, Jesus is not just somebody who lived 2,000 years ago as a comforter's son. He's not simply somebody who was crucified 2,000 years ago. He's not somebody for you to stand in a distance and say, okay, I, I admire that man Jesus. I've, I've heard of him a little bit. He doesn't want you to just think of him as a, just a good teacher or some moral guide. No, John says Jesus is the person of the Word. He's the second person of the Godhead. He's the eternal Word who has always been in intimate fellowship with God the Father. And therefore, He's the one, He's the Word who can communicate and reveal who God the Father is to His creatures. In fact, Jesus himself is God, though distinct from his Father. He's the second person, God the Son, the one who powerfully created everything in this universe, and the one who has the power to give sinful men and women who are lost in their darkness, he has the power to give them spiritual life and light so that they can see the need of this great God. So that's the first thing that he's really wanting to establish. This is who Jesus is. He's the eternal word who has an intimate relationship with God, who can reveal God the Father, and who is the one who created all things and has the power to give life and light 
to spiritually darkened, sinful people. And then let's now skip down to verse 14, because then he picks up the theme of the word again. And here we come to our second point, the incarnation of the word. And this is the second truth John wants to point us to, that the word actually became incarnate. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, he's saying, this is who Jesus is. Do you realize this? I mean, the wonder of it all, God, the eternal Son, the Word, has become incarnate. He has become flesh. The invisible God has become visible in the person of Jesus. The eternal One has taken on mortal flesh. The transcendent One has entered now into time and space. The Creator God has now become like one of His creatures. He says, I want you to understand that, people, is what John is saying. Now when he says, the Word became flesh, he's not saying the Word who is God the Son suddenly stopped becoming God and then took on human flesh. No, that's not possible. You say, why? Because God does not change. God can never at any point be less than God. And He cannot at any point be more than God. God does not change. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so as God, He will always remain the same and He will always remain God for all of eternity. So it does not mean that when he became flesh that he stopped being God. The word becoming flesh also does not mean that his divine nature was somehow mixed with his human nature to create some sort of a hybrid man, some sort of an alien sort of being. You know, you think of him like a Superman type of person. You know, you have bullets just bouncing off his chest. He looks like a human being, but you know, you shoot him and everything is just popping off. No, he's not mixed. Divine nature is mixed somehow with human nature to create this alien hybrid man. That's not who he is. Because then he wouldn't be fully God, fully and truly man. It wouldn't really be the incarnation then he would, if he was this sort of hybrid alien. No, he actually took on human flesh, with flesh and bone. A human nature with a human body like ours. Such that if you took a knife and you poked it into him, he would bleed. And he would experience pain. He would hunger. He would thirst. He would grow tired. He would cry. He would rejoice just like you and me. 
See, the eternal word, God the Son, took on human flesh such that he was fully and truly God. At the same time, he was fully and truly man. Now the term here for flesh, it speaks of human frailty and weakness. And I want us to just think of just the the wonder of, again, the word becoming flesh and taking on human frailty and weakness. And even just thinking through the wonder of it and even the staggering condescension of the eternal word, God the Son. I want you to just think about it. When you think about Jesus as a baby, I mean, this is the, John has just told us, this is the almighty creator of the world who has created all things in this universe. But when you think of Jesus as a baby, this is the almighty creator of the world who has now become the size of our forearm. A little baby cooing and crying. The almighty creator. The one who has life in himself is now dependent on his human mother to give him milk. The one who dwelt in all glory with his father is born supernaturally to a virgin woman. And then you think of all the scandal and the scorn and the shame surrounding that thinking he is some sort of an illegitimate child. And so therefore, there's no room for him to be born in a normal place. And he's born in a manger. And his first bed is a filthy animal, animal feeding trough. That's his first bed. Who is this? God. Who has taken on human And then to think God as a human baby would learn to crawl, would learn to stand, would learn to walk, would learn to talk. And as his human brain would develop and begin to grasp various concepts, the Bible itself says that Jesus then grew in wisdom and in stature with God and with man. I would even think he was even a normal teenager. So, you know, as a, te- as a teenager, I'm pretty sure that his voice too would have gone through phases when it was going like this and ultimately cracked and deepened at some point, just like every other teenage boy. Who is this? Creator God, Almighty God, taken on human flesh. And even when Jesus grew up, there was nothing externally special about his human nature. You know, most of the movies and pictures that depict Jesus these days, you know, show him to be this very handsome person. And, you know, he could easily be a model for some shampoo advertisement. You know, luscious locks and whatnot. And yet, I want you to just listen to what Isaiah 53, 2 says. This is speaking of Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty 
that we should desire him. Meaning he was just an ordinary looking man like one of us. You wouldn't notice him if he just walked through the crowd. The one who is full of glory and splendor came down from heaven and took on human flesh. Veiled his glory in human flesh. So much so that he comes and as he's walking around, he simply looks like an ordinary human being. And there is nothing in his external experience, appearance that people would even notice him. Now, although Jesus was and is God, and he took on human flesh, the kind of flesh that we have, in its frailty and weakness, we know from scriptures that he was a sinless human being. He did not have a sin nature like you and me. And that means he felt human weakness in a way that you and I will never will. Now think about it like this. I've used this example before. Imagine a newborn baby. The way the baby feels hunger and cold and thirst and pain, it's quite significant. And the baby will make it known uh, quite early with its cries. Now in comparison, imagine also a person who is nearing death. A person who is very close to death. You know, maybe has a few minutes or maybe an hour or something to live and is really nearing death. And you think of how that person experiences hunger. They're not going to feel as hungry. Such a person is not going to feel as thirsty as a baby. They're not going to feel pain as much. Why? Because they're nearing death and their life is almost gone and it's all a consequence of the sinfulness of man. Now think about Jesus as a human being. He's a sinless man. The life that he has is not tainted by sin. He does not have a sin nature. And therefore the life that he has is the abundant, full Life, the life that is full of vitality, even more vitality than a normal sinful human baby would have. So what that means is he is even more sensitive to the weaknesses of human frailty. So what that means is when Jesus experienced hunger, it was far greater than any hunger that any other human being has experienced. That when he experienced thirst, it was far greater than any other human being. When he felt sorrow, when he felt shame, it was far greater than what any other human being has experienced. And the opposite end of that would also be true, that when Jesus experienced joy, it was far greater joy than any human being would experience. 
because he was the perfect, sinless human being. But the focus here is on the, the fact that he took on human weakness and human frailty. And you can even imagine, when you think of the fact that Jesus has no sin, he would have also been even more sensitive to all the sin and the suffering around him. You know, one theologian explained this concept with a helpful analogy. He talked about people being uh, musically sensitive. You know, people who are musically sensitive can, say, go to a great performance, while most of us would say, yeah, that was a great performance. But people who are more tuned musically would say, oh, you know, I heard a few notes that were missed and a few notes that were a bit off, and that chord was off, and that was a little flat. But everyone else would think it was a great concert. That's because they're musically sensitive. Or you could think of people who are just sensitive and compassionate toward other people. You know, they, you know, they look at people, they can just sense, oh, this person seems really disappointed or really sad. Or I think this person really needs something. And so some people can be very sensitive to the needs of others that way. And other people have no sensitivity like that. But imagine being fully sensitive, therefore, when you think of Jesus, a sinless human being. He's fully sensitive to the horror of human sin all the time because he's exposed to it in this world. Even the smallest of sins that we may take for granted would be repulsive. And the way he would see human beings in their sin destroying themselves and blaspheming God that would repulse him even more so because he's so sensitive to sin. You know, I don't think we grasp enough the immensity or the immense difficulty of hu experiencing human frailty and sin that Jesus went through as God incarnate. I don't think we fully grasp that. And yet, Jesus, who is God, did take on human flesh, did take on human weakness and its frailty, so that he could sympathize with our every weakness as a human being and then provide the mercy and grace needed in time of need as we've learned in the book of Hebrews. That's at least one reason we can think of why he took on human flesh in its frailty. And notice there, verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and then dwelt among us. I mean, I, I, th this is, again, just so wonderful. Because remember, the, the word is the one who was in intimate, face-to-face -face relationship with God the Father and always has been from eternity past. Now he has stooped down low and entered our world and become like us. Why? 
so that we could be face to face with God in the person of Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing that God would do something like this? I mean, it is just staggering. But if that's not amazing enough, you think, well, how did mankind then treat this great God who had come down in the person of Jesus? Man reviled him and mocked him and abused him because man was so lost in sin. This is what John 3, 19 to 20 says. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. What it's saying is that mankind loved their sin so much that when Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world, mankind rejected Jesus, God incarnate, because they didn't want their sin to be exposed. The Creator had come into the world and taken on human flesh, the flesh of His creatures, but the world rejected Him. Jesus, who had the power to create the whole world, and yet, He subjected Himself to the mocking and the spitting and the beating and the whipping of human beings. He allowed himself, he allowed his body to be torn and his hands and his feet to be nailed to a cross by creatures that he himself made. And it's not just the physical aspect of it, spiritually speaking too. He was forsaken by his father. Again, the one who was in intimate relationship with God the Father from eternity past. On that cross, spiritually speaking, he was forsaken by the Father. Where God the Father then poured out his eternal wrath on him. Why? For the sin of this world for the sin of people like you and me. See, Jesus died on that cross, becoming a substitute for sinners like you and me. And he died the death that you and I should have died. But you say, why, why? Why would eternal God, this powerful God, this God who had no need of anything was an intimate relationship within the triune God. Created a world and then came into this world to be treated as the scum of this world. And then to be forsaken by his father. Why did he do this? 
Because this was the only way sinful, rebellious, filthy creatures like us could be made right with this triune God. So that all those who trust in Jesus would have spiritual life and light to see their own sin and their need for him and would cling on to Jesus and be in right relationship with this triune God. And Jesus did all this so that sinners could understand the truth and grace of our great God. Now in closing, I just want to tell you just um, something that a famous astronaut has said. It was in the year 1989. And Carl Sagan, the late astronomer, you know, as they were leaving the uh, our solar system back in 1989, just before they left the solar system, he told the officials to just turn the camera around and capture just one last shot of the Earth. And the photograph that came through is a very famous photograph. It captured the, the portrait of Earth from the edge of the solar system, about 3.6 billion miles away. It's a, it's a picture of these rings of the solar system, and you see this little tiny dot. And famously, this is called as the pale blue dot. Carl Sagan, he was not a Christian, he was, he was an atheist, a secularist. And this is what he said, looking at that picture. He says, he said, quote, look at that dot. That's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've heard of, every human being, whoever was, lives out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering and thousands of confident religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, coward every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor, explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on this mort of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. His point was seeing that, saying, we're insignificant. In fact, our, even our planet is insignificant compared to the entire universe. It's just a little tiny pale blue dot. And if you want to take that further, you want to, the implications of that, what he's saying is, then everything is meaningless. Our lives have no meaning. 
just everything is just there, but in comparison to the entire universe, it has no significance whatsoever. You could say it's similar to the theme of Ecclesiastes. All is vanity, everything is meaningless. But here's the thing. That pale blue dot begins to have a lot of meaning when you think of it from the perspective of who made it. When you think it is the triune God and specifically through the second person of the triune God, the eternal word, who created that entire universe including this pale blue dot that is our planet. And he created you and me. But we rebelled against this great and gracious God. And we sinned against him and rebelled against him and hardened our hearts so much so that we were so spiritually blind and dead. And you know what this God did? Oh, the second person of the triune God came into this tiny blue dot and took the form of frail human beings like you and me. Experienced the frailty of living in this sin-cursed world and experienced the frailty of being a human being. And then he died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice to pay the price of sinners like you and me. And then he didn't remain dead. He rose up on the third day. But he didn't rise up on the third day as a ghost. No, he rose up on the third day as a human being with a glorified body. And now he's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God as a glorified man. He is still fully God, but he is and forever will be fully man, a glorified man. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is what Christmas is all about. A God who is holy and gracious and merciful and loving and powerful and kind and compassionate. A God who has come down into this world for rebellious creatures like us so that we could come face to face with him and be part of that wonderful relationship within this triune God. May these words cause us to say thank you. Wow, this is who Jesus is. He is God, the eternal God. And he came down for you and for me. And if there's people that you have in your homes or you come in contact with that don't know Jesus, Tell them about the significance of Jesus, that this is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the wonderful God you are. You are wonderful for who you are. You are wonderful for the fact that you have created this entire universe. And you created us so that we could have fellowship with you, yet we turned away from you. And thank you that despite that, 
you the second person of who you are came in the person of Jesus Christ and bore our sin on that cross and paid the price for our sins so that we could be right with you and be face to face with you. Thank you for this privilege and pray that as we celebrate Christmas that we would remember that this is what makes Christmas significant. It is not the gifts, it is not Santa Claus, it's not the weather, it's not the people around, but it is what you have done in and through your son. And may he get all the glory, even in this Christmas season. We ask all this in his precious name. Amen.